Today, we are continuing our series entitled, I Have an Announcement, but instead of a sermon, what we're going to do is have a conversation. So, Pastor Danielle and Omer are going to come on up to the stage. Let's give them a big welcome. As many of you who have been with us for a little while know, um, all three of us have had the opportunity to share messages in the series, and... um, I will tell you that it's been, I I mean, I love it because, honestly, their messages were my two favorite of the series, and I mean that sincerely. It was really... Which which one was the most favorite? Oh, don't don't do that to me. Who who are you supposed to go home with in like an hour? (laughs) (laughs) There's a safe answer. Clearly, Danielle's message blew me out of the water. Um, And as as we as a community actually give these teachings... I think part of what has spurred on this conversation here is I think it's very easy for many of us to either attend this church or any church, hear a nice sermon, hear a nice talk, and then go home and maybe feel a little bit inspired about it. For us, I think this conversation has really deep implications. The title of the series that we have here is I Have an Announcement, which is the good news then as good news now. And... Even though we've been learning about what that good news is then, today what I want to do with this conversation is ask the question, so is it good news now, today, in this world? And how is it good news now, today, in this world? Does essentially this thing that we've been talking about, does it matter? And how does it matter in the very complicated world Uh, that we live in. So it doesn't just sit in a personal spiritual space. For those of you who were at the Jim Wallace event at uh, Sunnyvale Presbyterian, Jim is famous for saying the phrase that faith is always personal, but it's never just private. means it has implications for this world. We met earlier this week and had a wonderful conversation. We're going to do our best to try to duplicate that conversation and uh, If you have a question, by the way, in the midst of all this, just raise your hand and we'll interrupt and we'll try to make this a very fluid conversation with all of you as well. Okay, deal? Deal. Okay. It's basically the question, how does the good news of Jesus then actually work today? That's really the question. And I thought maybe we could start and with your guys' clarifications or implications with what really is the good news that we talked about. <laughs> Just sums it all up right there. <laughs> in the past. Um, Omer's talk, for those of you who didn't hear it, was the good news, the gospel is not about you. It's about something so much bigger. Now, we might be a part of that, but it's so much bigger. It's about the life, the teachings, the ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, this thing that happens within the grander story of Israel. And even though many of us probably have grown up under, well, the good news is about your personal salvation or the Romans road or anything along those lines. The Bible talks about the story that we've inherited is actually much larger and bigger than that. So for God so loved the world is yeah. how the text goes in John three sixteen that it's not for God so loved Danielle, <laughs> right? Although I like to read it that way. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the point is that it's not It's even bigger than only that, because all of that means a fuller redemption and rescue of the entire world, um, of the the universe, right? Not even just only the earth. 
like when we believe in the coming of God's kingdom, God's rule, and God's reign in this place, which is fully realized to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his life and how he lives and how he teaches us to live, this crashing in of the kingdom, that that is not just only true for the earth, but it's true for the whole solar system, for the whole universe, for the entire expanse of all of creation, right? That, that God's not going to have a, a second coming here where all of this stuff gets renewed and set in right, but forget Mars, right? <laughs> somehow Mars is somehow included in all that, right? Um, or pets, for that matter. Pets. Or, or, you, know, uh, you know, the earth and everything. And I think, too, like, so one of the one of the questions that have come up since the lesson defining the gospel is, well, then, so what does the place of my own personal salvation play in, uh, you know, in the story of the gospel? Mm -hmm. And the main thing that, that I wanted to do in that lesson was just at least set the ground for like, this is what the gospel is. Yes, there are implications for you. We should always talk about that, but let's always start with Jesus first and then work out from there. And, and, you know, for sure the gospel does have implications for me as an individual. It matters. And, um, you know, we, we even talked about how when, when Paul defines the gospel, particularly talking about the resurrection, he treats it as a reality, like this thing happened and it matters. It's not, it's not an optional thing about the destiny of the universe. This is where the story is going and you have a role to play in it. But, but first, let's get a grip on the story. Right. right. And in fact, if it didn't happen, all is lost. Right. right? Exactly. And First Corinthians 15, like, if the resurrection right. didn't occur, then we have no hope at all. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a real bummer. Right. And yet, and yet, a lot of times we can offer, we offer people a presentation of the gospel yes. that doesn't include yep. the resurrection. Um, wait, you know, somehow, if you're framing the gospel in a way that sounds hopeful without mentioning the resurrection, I think you're, you're missing a huge part of the story. Yes. Amen. Number two, the followers of this way live on love. That's the fundamental message of the gospel. It's a different way of thinking about God. It's a different way of thinking about one another. And, um, I mean, Jesus sums this up as the greatest commandment, teaching that if you've been around Spark for any period of time, you've heard us say this over and over, the greatest commandment. It's found in the Deuteronomy 6, 4 passage, which many of you know as the Shema, which is the greatest commandment in the entire Bible. Um, Jesus says so in Jesus Mark 12. Yeah. And this is love. And uh, I think N.T. Wright alluded to how our modern word love is really insufficient to get at what the ancient Hebrews understood as ahava love and what the Greeks understood as agape love. And so we're, we're striving and grasping at deeper definitions, the ways in which it's um, essentially fleshed out in our text, in our tradition, is that not only do we love God, we love neighbor, we love self, but we also love enemy. And that, I think, is really the, the harder part. Which we'll get to soon. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're talking about when we talk about this gospel being for us as individuals and having implications for us as individuals, what that means is that as now sons and daughters of the king, like as we are brought into the family of God through the personhood of Jesus Christ, because most of us in this room are not Israelites. And one of the main huge things that Jesus did, besides being Messiah for Israel, that in his Messiahship for Israel, he also brought in all the nations, which was the promise that God had made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. So when all of us 
goyim, all of us Gentiles get to come in, Paul is very clear, Peter is very clear, um, that we are no longer foreigners and aliens. Though we were at one time, we are now children of God. And we're brought in that no longer is there Jew or Greek or slave or free or male, female, all are one in Christ Jesus. And that as now citizens, um, family members and citizens of this rule and reign, this kingdom of God, we then have a responsibility to live according to that citizenship. And it's one that doesn't get revoked. It doesn't get taken away from you. It's because of the work of Jesus, not because of any one of us. But there's a responsibility that if we're going to say, this is my father, this is my king, this is my Lord, which is radical revolutionary talk in Jesus's day as well as today. I think we lose that because we don't use the word Lord in our common everyday language except to talk about religion, right? But in Jesus's day, Caesar was declaring himself to be Lord. So when you say Jesus is, you're saying Caesar isn't. And that you're not part of that kingdom of Caesar's rule and reign, but you're part of something greater. And as a result of that citizenship, that rule and reign that we're all brought on into this family of God, we live and behave differently. Years ago, I was doing children's ministry and... um, one of my really spirited young kiddos uh, socked her teacher right in the nose. Just like pulled a punch. Like she was probably three, you know. I can see my daughter doing this sometimes. And just pop. And so obviously we have to, we have to address that. So we've pulled her out. We've invited her father into the conversation. And we're sitting there. And she was unrepentant. She kind of thought the whole thing was a little bit funny. I'm sure she didn't really realize the implications of popping somebody in the nose. And we're having this conversation. And she was trying to justify her choice, which was probably like, I still wanted more graham crackers or whatever, you know, the issue was at the moment. And the father, a friend of mine, looked in. And instead of continuing to negotiate with his daughter... He just leaned in and he said, whose daughter are you? And she said, I'm your daughter, daddy. He said, no, whose daughter are you? Who is your father? She's like, I'm your, I'm your daughter, daddy. He's like, does my daughter behave this way? Is this how it's okay? And he grounded her in the identity of her daughtership in his family and then in the larger family of God. And it was only then when she remembered whose she is that she was repentant. Then she was like, oh, and then she started to break down and cry. I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. I, this is not how I'm supposed to behave. And I, I think that's what I think of those types of pictures. When I think of what this means for us as individuals is how we live differently because of who and who, who he is and whose we are, who we belong to. Yeah, and uh, thinking too about the like the political implications of saying Jesus is Lord. So back then, it, it was an inherently political statement to say Jesus is Lord and to say to say that you believe in the good news about Jesus and not the good news about Caesar. Instead, um, the you know today, I think part of the disconnect for a lot of us comes that how today could Christians as a group say something that is so politically destabilizing that <laughs> that an entire empire or government could look at Christians as a group and say, what a threatening, unreliable group of people. Because I think in, in a lot of ways, both on the left and the right, there are like a lot of politicians have become adept in being able to co-opt Christians for their own causes and don't perceive them as a harmful group to their base or like a threat to right, the system right. or something. But a like tool that. instead right. to you. 
yeah, to exactly. wield for their own benefit. Right. Yeah. And we've let them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> on both, on all sides yeah. of that, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so your question's interesting, right? What, what is it that would be, what, that we would be able to say as followers of Jesus that would be so destabilizing and threatening right. to any powers that be? Because that's what the early followers of Jesus were doing. That's what, I mean, continuing, this is why they killed Jesus. It's why the Romans at one point crucified so many Jews that they ran out of wood and had to start nailing them to the walls of the city. Because they perceive them to be a threat, a real threat. And there's actually quite a number of um, extra biblical documentation on like these rowdy Judeans and how difficult they are to rule. And they keep talking about how they have no king but but God and how they want their own king that didn't buy that office to be there. And I mean, there there was a lot of uh, frustration and, and political statement during that day. And it's what gets all the disciples killed is their statement that Jesus is Lord. Um, and, and it's what, I mean, you think about Nero and we talk about the burning of Christians. This is how do we continue to follow Jesus and in, in light of, is the gospel good news for us today? And does it make us live differently today? Yeah, let's go there. Okay. Um, so part of what we uh, has been living in the ether, living in the air, in our current sociopolitical context is... Um, some angst or confusion or uncertainty as to how or what even is the good news, first of all. And so we're trying to clarify that, trying to get back to the original source of that. But then ask the question, what are the very practical realities of living that good news in a situation and a circumstance where I think many of us are uncertain how that actually works in our current uh, reality? I recognize I'm being maybe a little bit too vague um, just to be sensitive, but I think it's, it's obviously an important question because um, it's, part, it's part of what we're all having a conversation about. So, Omer, I wanted you to sh- actually share um, your family situation, if you wouldn't mind, and how this exemplification of the good news lives in what you have to, the tensions that you... Are you talking specifically about what he shared growing up with? Yeah, oh, okay. if, if yeah. you're okay with that. Yeah, did you, so do you mean the, uh, like, growing up as a Muslim in America? Yeah. yeah. Okay, because there's yeah. also just our current family situation. Where, <laughs> well, it's, where, uh, it's all of that. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so so uh, growing up as a, as a Muslim in America, I think that when you are neither um, uh, part of a family that's you know, goes back multiple generations in America, nor a Christian, you can find yourself on the outside or feeling like an outsider in this country in so many ways. And um, for me, for for such a long time, one of the reasons that I felt like I never had to take the claims uh, about Jesus and the Bible seriously was because I felt like um, Christianity was very much associated with what I perceived America to be. And I know that that's the case for a lot of Muslims in this country where you, you kind of uh, equate the two. And, uh, and it's not entirely wrong to get that vibe sometimes because I think when I became a Christian uh, and, and I realized the way that politics and, and uh, religion in this country operate, I realized that there, is a, there are a lot of ways in which both have been, both you know, Americanism and Christianity have been co-opted for the purposes of the other. And, um, and so, so I think one of the things that, that Christine and I will always value moving forward is wherever we can to try to disentangle uh, being American 
from being a Christian, and that the two the two are not the same, and um, and that there there are profound consequences that come with with conflating the two. Which is, I think, an important point, um, not just for our current situation, but if, for those of you who've done Garden to Garden or you've read through, you know, Israelite history and and, his, and historical text. God's intention was never to have a king. The intention was not to have a theocracy. That was as a result of the people of Israel saying, rejecting God as their king and instead wanting a human form to take place. And they said this to Samuel. They're like, hey, we want a king like the other nations have. And then they get King Saul, the first king, and his name in Hebrew is Shaul, and it literally means you asked for it. Um, so they get the king they asked for, and the king they asked for is tall and ruddy, you know, is handsome, and he literally cannot keep track of his own donkeys. So, um, and the euphemism in Hebrew is the same in English. So he's following donkeys all around, and he can't keep track of that, his father's donkeys, and he ends up becoming the king of Israel, and things go south pretty quickly. And God says to Samuel, and Samuel's upset about this, don't worry, they didn't reject you, they've rejected me. Because they, it's easy, and I completely understand why you want a king you can see and not and and not be required to see one I mean what we're all doing today is to try to convince all of us that we're members of a kingdom that we can't always see and that we're following a king that we can't always fully in fact we probably should never fully comprehend because it's God, right? So we, we can't really comprehend that. So I just want to note that the Bible thinks that a a human theocracy is a bad idea and then demonstrates that truth and reality over and over and over again because we just get Saul, David, Solomon, and the kingdom breaks apart and there's civil war. And and we can make arguments for why there's a lot of pain in all of that pretty quickly. So we don't want to live, just in case anyone's wondering, we really don't want to live in a Christian nation. We We don't want, we want God to be our king. We're not looking for a king here on earth. We already have one. Well, in many ways, the endeavor, um, and I know, I know some of this is going to be really controversial, but the endeavor to make our expression of faith the one that's in power and control seems to be, com- seems to be contrary to the Jesus movement, which is your submission to a different kind of power. I mean, submission to love, laying down your life for your enemy and your neighbor rather than first will be last the last will be first right i mean there's there's so many go the extra mile there's so many things that that jesus teaches specifically that are completely different we have a question in the back yeah yes sure uh which type of christian should be in charge in order to make it a christian nation Right. No, I'm just, I'm trying to answer your question with a question. Uh, to, to answer your question is to say, well, I can't think of one Christian in my life, and, and I know several of you that are really wonderful and amazing, that I would like to be the representative face of Christianity in this world. I want Jesus and his teachings to be the representative faith, and then I think we should all debate and discuss that. And, and I, I want to say, I think one of the things we talked about this last week that we've been wrestling through so we're not talking about policy. I don't want to talk about how we should secure borders or if or I, I'm not talking about any political policy. But I do want to talk about the values that are clear in our text and then clearly embodied by the person of Jesus 
and commanded to his followers that are identifiers for us as his people. Because if a political party, either side, co-ops something that Jesus teaches and tries to make it political, well, that's their problem. But that doesn't mean that I should then release hold of this value. So I don't want to talk about, and I'm, I mean, the conversation, I was a political science major. My mother raised me to say, seriously, my mother raised me saying, you don't discuss religion and politics with strangers. It's not good company. You don't do it. So, so I became a poli-sci major and a pastor, right? And this is what I, I've, She's been thrilled ever since. So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, poor mom. Um, so I, I think this is a wonky political conversation. If you want to talk about how do you do this, how do you do that, how you do these things, but you can you can have all that conversation about what's the legislation stuff. That's a different conversation for people who are hopefully educated and well versed in policy and practical matters. And there's really genuine and good debate. And I would argue that everyone's probably a little bit right and a little bit wrong. And varying on the issue, you might get 60-40 sometimes or maybe 90-10. But everyone's going to argue those policies. That's a conversation for government. But we're followers of Jesus and we are citizens of his kingdom. What's our conversation well, the teachings of Jesus on some of these things should, could not be clearer when we talk about how we're to treat people, how we're to love others, um, and how we're to express that. And, and I would say kindness and civility are part of that as well. So I want to jump in here uh, based on what you're saying. Um, if I can make a confession to all of you, being a pastor, and I've, ha- I've had a couple of conversations with several of my pastor friends, in this current era has been a real challenge. Because the people that you love, that you care about, that are listening to you share and teach and try to do your best to give the best teachings that you see from this text and this tradition, are, once they get out into the broad spectrum of the congregation, splays into this massive diversity... And I was just in, in Oakland in the East Bay, and, and they were saying, yeah, it, it feels as if no matter what you say, you're going to be disappointing somebody. So I, I, I want to confess to you, I guess, as a pastor of this congregation, this has been a real challenge and a struggle to figure it out. Um, but based upon what Daniela said, this is this, going back to the original gospel has been really, really helpful because... I mean, Danielle and I and, and Omer and Christine, I mean, we all have our opinions and we have our thoughts, um, right, about maybe how to be involved in our current uh, democracy. Um, but the gospel of Jesus grounds me in that loving of the other, which has implications for certain policies. But here's the kicker, and then Omer has um, maybe a story to tell on this. It also grounds me in loving not just the other who might happen to be the end result of a policy, the other who actually believes different from me right. about what policy should be in place. Yes. And yeah. that, I feel, has been really, really lost. Mm-hmm. And I, get, I personally get a sense that Christian churches are starting to really break apart. I think Omer said this when we met earlier, that as America has become more polarized and more separated, the church is now also following suit. But we are submissive to the gospel, which means loving those who may even feel differently about certain parties, policies, voted differently. And there is a, there is a call to me 
and I think to all of us, to love that person who's saying things that you vehemently disagree with ideologically. And I, I think that's the thing that seems, um, seems to be, have been lost. So those of us who, um, those of us in this room or, or listening to this who feel very strongly that this particular policy or legislation is an exemplification of Christian values, of loving the other, of loving the stranger, do we, do we have the same kind of love for the person who disagrees with that, that we do for the person who we're trying to fight for. And that, to me, I feel is the great, it's a great challenge. And, and I just add, and the same capacity to believe that that person is also seeking and striving to love Jesus yes, through right. that process. Rather than to other them through a different, like, they're, they're not Christian. Right. Which I've seen a lot of, well, that person must not be a Christian. Yeah, exactly. Goodness, goodness. Yeah, and so um, it, it brought me back to uh, a quote from a... A journalist in the 20th century, at least I think it was, maybe uh, St. Francis of Azizi, I don't know. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the most segregated place in America is 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. I, I think many of you have probably heard that quote. Which and is why we meet at 4.30 on right. Sunday night. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> We're all about the reconciliation here. Later in the day <laughs> at dinner time. Um, and uh, what, what uh, I was really afraid of um, after the election was that was that that would become even truer in, mm-hmm. in our context and to to me what would be really sad is if churches increasingly became a place that uh, you know there were only republicans in a church and only democrats in a church and we have i've really valued over the course of my life having a diversity of opinions uh, right, in a congregation right. and it really sparks discussion and it's it's a beautiful thing to have and it's a sad place when i think everybody feels the same way on 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 like policy issues for example right. And so, you know, we, we always think about how it's absolutely right to think of refugees and a lot of people who are victims as the other. And, and that's right. But so many of us are already on the side of those refugees. And it's like, yep, I'm in. I, I will be there for those others. But who are our own others? Like, who are the people that we dehumanize or that when they share right. their opinions, we can't possibly imagine that there is a logical reason for them to think what they think or say what they say? That's, that is dehumanizing when you can't right. imagine that other people arrive at their conclusions the same way that you do. And, um, and so, you know, uh, one of the things Christine and I are trying to do is make sure that we continue to listen to, to everybody in our lives and our Facebook feeds. We, we're in a situation where we have friends and relatives who are uh, on both ends of the political spectrum, and we have not unfriended any of them, and, uh, and we, we want to try to understand them better because we don't want to be the ones who are detached from reality and, right, right. and just not understanding what the other half of the country is like. I think that would be very sad, and I think that hurts Christians when, um, when they just fail to understand people who are not like them. Yeah. Well, and I just note that for Spark, you guys, we walk by those banners every time you come on in. I don't know if you really pay attention, but we have five core values here, right? And the first one is love. And that's the love of God and love of neighbor and as yourself and, and love of enemy. And it, it, that's the core value, love and belief that God loves us. And then we have reputation of God. And this means that we're trying to live in such a way that we want to elevate the reputation of God in our community. So we want to 
not be shouting at one another, not be dehumanizing one another. We want to teach in such a way that elevates the teachings of Jesus that says, hey, regardless of how you think a policy should or should not be implemented or a law that should or should not be passed, here's what Jesus does say about loving the vulnerable, loving the marginalized. And you can be trying to solve that problem or live that out and still want uh, to, to strengthen borders. because we're not a Christian nation. Or you can be saying, I really want to love that out. And I think that works in my advocacy for equality um, and and justice and fairness through our criminal justice system or all those types of things. Our next value is reconciliation. And when we talk about the ministry of reconciliation, we believe that we've been given that ministry of reconciliation by Christ himself, who has reconciled us, all of humanity, all of the earth to God. And in that then, from the very beginning of Spark, when we talk about interfaith, multi-faith reconciliation, uh, racial reconciliation, uh, gender reconciliation, all of this kind of stuff, from the very beginning, and then with our following values of rescue and resurrection, we've met in a synagogue. So the identity core value, for those of you who've been here for four plus years at Spark, We started in a synagogue because I and we have been working for Jewish Christian dialogue in our area to try to right wrongs over the last 1,700 plus years, mostly on the part of Christians to Jews, ghettoizing them, killing them, um, just saying horrible things and Holocaust and all those other things. We we understand we have a lot of repair work to do, so we said we're going to focus on Jewish Christian dialogue, Muslim Christian dialogue. We're going to focus on racial reconciliation because we understand that there's been institutionalized racism here. And so, and we did that when we started here in a synagogue that was possible because of all this work that we had lived out, these values of Jesus that we believe are present, that are lived out daily in our lives and now lived out actually architecturally in a building. And when we started, I was the only one on staff. So we had, we started with a primarily, you know, all female leadership. So if you've been shocked that at some point we might stand up for women's rights, you should have paid attention (laughs) to our employment role when we started. If you've been shocked that we did a multi-faith peace walk or that we're standing today with Jews who are standing for refugees for Muslims, if you've been shocked by that as we've invited up rabbis and leaders from the Muslim community to come here and say, we will stand with you even with our differences because we believe Jesus calls us to do that. If you've been shocked by those things, you weren't paying attention to the words when you walked in and all the Torah and Talmud books in the (laughs) library where you get your coffee. Um, If you've been shocked that we went to a conversation about mass incarceration on Thursday, or that we haven't been, that we've been part of, like we're reading the new Jim Crow for our, for our book study, or that hello, Sparkers, you guys for over three years have been advocating for refugees. This is not a new thing. Again, if any of these movements for us have has shocked you and going, wow, I guess they're sounding a little political. We just like to say, um, no, these have been these deeply held Jesus values for us that we see in the person and ministry of Jesus. We hear deeply his call to love, to reconcile, to work towards those ends of rescue and resurrection. And we're constantly working on these things. And it pushes us into areas of discomfort. It pushes us into stretching. When Kevin did a conversation this last year, I 
a year ago on um, gender issues and human sexuality and all that. It was with the attempt to find points of reconciliation and commonality. And we held that gray, that space, that tension of if you feel this way about this issue or you feel this way about this issue, we can still come together and love and respect one another. We don't have to vote anybody off the island of Jesus follower. So all of who Spark is, I think, is created for this moment where we are uniquely set up to deeply love one another with civility. And that means not just people in this room, right? But the people at all of the other churches in the area and beyond that we may or may not agree with. I think it's important to, uh, one, one quick comment before it gets out of my brain, uh, Kwame. It, just to reemphasize, because um, we have heard some criticism or critique that there's, there's those labels that come when you start talking in this way. Oh, they might happen to be a liberal church, <laughs> or they might happen to be this kind of a church. And I think if we can do our best to try to be as clear as possible with all of you who we deeply love, we are a Jesus-centered church. These values, the exemplification, and digging deep, deep into the tradition of Jesus and the way of Jesus, oh, that must therefore mean this is what needs to then be important to us. And so we're not, I, I know for me personally, I don't want to become a liberal church. I don't, know what, I don't even know what that means. I don't even like those titles. But if this is the way of Jesus and this is what love in that way means, I, I got, I'm going to follow that. We're going to right. We, we can't track. control how anyone is going to label or categorize any of our faith expressions anytime. But for me, if I can sit down with somebody who is like-minded or not like-minded, but we can both sit down and read the Sermon on the Mount and try to go, okay, well, what do we see here? All right, well, this is how I'm supposed to live. Now, now we can each work that out and write your congressman or march or whatever it is you want to do based upon your own convictions as to how you think that should be lived out in your own household. Kwame. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to fish tail on some things that were brought up. One was the idea that we don't want to live in a Christian nation, or anything that we don't live in a Christian nation. And the background, the background is, if you take Israel, and you said, yeah, then look, the reality of it is they give up on right? Uh, that's the reality we live in today. We have a president, we have a leadership that's not God or Jesus. But you see many uh, examples of when the king followed, when the king was aligned with God, when he followed God, the nation was blessed, the land was blessed, the people were blessed. Oh. Okay, you want me to repeat that? There's, no, just keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, but when the, uh, when the nation, so when the king of Israel of old would follow and align themselves with God, the, the nation was blessed, the people were blessed, the land was blessed, they had peace, or they, you know, they were able to secure peace through victories in war. So there is a lot of value in having, even, you know, even if it wasn't designed to be okay, then we, we have a king, um, but having a structure that aligns itself with God, or in our case with Jesus, still, I think there's a lot of value in, it, in, in, in that being the case, mm-hmm. because we can expect those same kinds of things. Our land will be blessed, our people will be blessed, we'll have security, we'll have economic prosperity, we'll have these things. And I think that's what drives a lot of the thought process of, hey, look, if we, you know, these are the expectations, or here, here's the fruits of, of, of that labor. And, and I wanted to see if you had comments on that. In, 
in, in context of today's sure. structure. Sure. That's a great observation. Thanks. It's a great observation and question, and I have a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> Go ahead. Somebody else should talk. <laughs> well, my first thought is, you know, part of the problem with uh, the way in which we read the Bible is we see the Bible as an entity, but what we really see is an anthropological history of how people have expressed their faith. And so you do, you're, I think you're exactly correct. There are moments when there are political structures in place, and the theology is part of that. There's a lot of complexity, obviously, to that. There's some uh, successes, and there are some failures. Would you say it's a structure or a person? What, what, what did so, I say? And what did uh, you're it? saying like there are times when there's a political structure in place and that political structure seems to be functioning in a way accordance to God's will. And I would just say the structure seems to not be changing. The individual seems to be changing when you're talking about the kings. Well, so, so you get to like this king <clears throat> was had a, you know, was I, I, after God's own heart. And then these things happened. This king was a mess. And then these things happened. I, I would just take the, the basic uh, three-tiered system of prophet, priest, and king. That Got there's it. different kinds of structures of what may be socio-political governance, and you see those expressed in different ways. Then when you get to Jesus, he is very much non... He's, he's a confrontation to the political powers that be. So um, I think what you're bringing up, at least my initial response, is exactly why we want to try to have a conversation like this, because there's some people might see it in that way and see the benefits of it and see how it could be perhaps a calling, which is why many Christians are very much involved politically today because they see it within that line and that we can still love another Christian or love another follower of Jesus who may think very differently from that. So I, I, I want to, I think I would affirm. Well, and then yeah. and that one go small ahead. thing, yeah. and then you can, you can no, go ahead. you had more thoughts on it, I think, no. um, <laughs> or more to say. So one thing too, that I always try to keep in mind when reading uh, the story of Israel and then trying to understand its implications for America is to remind myself that America is not the new Israel and, and nowhere should it be perceived as such. Um, in fact, like, so if you think about Israel as it is yes. God's people, that is, that is who they are. Then really when we think about like, okay, so who is Israel today? I mean, it's still God's people and it has been brought in beyond Jews to include Gentiles. It's the church. Like that is, that's like, so when I think about, you know, you were saying these promises of when, when God's people do what, do what God hopes for, things go well for everybody. The way I read it is when the church does what's right for God, things go well for everybody, rather than thinking that, you know, it's Amer- like when things go well for America or something like that. Right, and I would just add, by things go well, we mean you could lose your life. Right. <laughs> because that's the Bible story. Jesus does, he lives this way. He lives according to these teachings and these values, and he meets crucifixion. The people of God who followed him, the disciples that followed him, they were all, with the exception of an exile for John, met met some horrifying death. And they're just the ones that we know that are named. So I I would caution any thought of, and then things went well with them, right? The, the, The idea that if we obey God, we are blessed is a, a, an equation that cannot be meted out in reality that I see. I think individually, like there's a, if I love God and I don't steal or I don't harm somebody or I, you know, I keep my wedding vows, I'm blessed because the opposing experiences of that are pretty horrifying, right? So if I don't keep my wedding vows, I go through divorce. I have 
tearing apart community, right? All these other things that happen. So that there's an inherent blessing to obedience because it's good instructions. Uh, one of our friends, Pastor Roy Tinklenberg, he came in front of 56, my fifth and sixth graders years ago, with a fishbowl and a fish inside. I would have never have done this. It was appalling, but it worked. Um, and he said, okay, when you live according to Deuteronomy, when you're living according to God's commands, here's life. He does the Moses, like I've said before you, life and death, choose life. And so he goes, here, you know, if you want to live according to God's commands, you get to swim in this little fishbowl. If you don't, and he takes the fish out and put it on the table and it's flopping, this goldfish, all children are freaking out. And I'm freaking out. We're going, oh my gosh, this is horrifying. Why did I invite you to preach? <laughs> and, and he's like, this is what it looks like to not to live outside of God's commands, right? You've now said, I want to live outside of the way in which you've created me. And it, the, he picked it up and the fish was fine. I'm sure fish brain, not traumatized. I was traumatized. Children never spoke to him again, but, um, but I like the picture. So the, the problem I have with, if you are doing these things, then we get blessed is that it just doesn't bear out for me in reality. There's a, there's 20 to 30,000 children today who will die because of hunger or hunger related disease. And that's a reality that will continue again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So is somebody in this room going to dare to go toe-to-toe with me and tell me that those children are not loved or blessed by God? Because it is not going well with them. But if the church is the church and we were to reach into those communities and find ways to alleviate poverty, find ways to step into those realities, then it would go well with them. So it goes back to the rule and the reign of God. If God is our king and we are living according to God's commands and God's way, then there will be blessings unto the nations. But it is not something that happens because here's the other problem I have with it. There's a whole bunch of people out there that are doing really horrible, bad, awful things. 27 million slaves today in the world. So those people, I don't see them getting punished. Some of them I see going into churches and not being struck dead as Ananias and Sapphira were in Acts. So if God is the kind of God who harms those who don't do well, right, and blesses those who are doing well, he's doing a terrible job at that reality. I have a bone to pick and I have several names to submit. So I'm just joking, of course, kind of. By the way, if you've ever read any of the Psalms... This right. is what right. Danielle is saying. Or the prophets, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And that's the thing. So wisdom literature, um, which echoes a lot of the, like, you know, do good and you'll be blessed, do bad and you'll be cursed. Like, uh, there are dissenting voices within the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes talks about how, <laughs> like, sometimes I look at the world and that's exactly the opposite. Therefore, right. why does anything matter? Like, that's, right. so there are, they, even, even the Bible itself is right. aware that life doesn't always yeah. work that way. And Jesus himself says, when, if you don't love your enemies, what good are you? Don't even the pagans do that. And then he says, this is the Sermon on the Mount. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? Both are getting blessed on the earth by rainfall. And the, the distinction here is how do we win people? How do we move everyone a click closer to redemptive, life-giving, loving, hopeful relationship with God? Jesus and the world, that's the movement that we're aiming for. And there's not one king. Let's say most famous king, David. Great. Let's talk about David. Got a guy killed because he slept with his wife, right? 
So uh, his son rapes his daughter and he does nothing about that. David, who is a man after God's own heart and did a lot of good things, is also a very complex individual. And we don't have, I mean, Solomon, who's the wisest king of all, enslaved people, expanded the kingdom to beyond what was humane, um, did, did some very difficult things, but not to mention all the women and the horses and the gold. So, and the cedar and the, you know, all those other kinds of things. So we have a lot of complex and the foreign God worship that was going on. There's a lot of complexity that we have when we say things like, but Solomon was the wisest king of all time, right? Well, look at the bucket that you're looking at. That may not be saying much, right? Okay. So, Lucia, you had a question? Yes, yes, so everyone can hear so you. We need, please. <laughs> You'll think and twice about asking a question next time. <laughs> so I was saying that um, 30 years that I lived in my, in my uh, homeland, it was a, in a civil war. And uh, as a baby Christian, uh, there was always conflict, of course, of what a Christian should stand. And an old conflict came, and an old conflict was created. I think I never solved it. But recently, it's coming back again. And it's this. It's, I understand that we are also called to obey the laws of the land, mm-hmm. to pray for the leader. Okay. Is there a limit? <laughs> okay. When, Great question. Is so, there a limit to this? Do I... How... Uh, love your enemies. <laughs> Here's Jesus. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. No, it's not that. It's no, but, but I'm saying a leader could be perceived to be an enemy. There's no asterisk there. Uh, this, is, this is my question. Okay. It's the question of So the if I am called resistance. to obey the laws of the land, so that is mm. government, mm-hmm. how much into it? Is there a, a moment where I need to draw the line towards that obedience or not? As I said, I think when I was back in my country, yeah. Yeah. I just didn't want to see it. It was very difficult to love many people. Sure. Okay. I think that I, I don't think there's an answer. Uh, and I'm being very sincere in that. There's not an answer. Because if you take a look at the civil rights movement in the United States, I'm more familiar with that than I am with, with the situation in your country. There are clearly times where civil disobedience is a leveraging point. Um, and much of that, by the way, both from MLK and Gandhi, was drawn from this movement of Jesus, right? So they're, they're, they're doing their best to understand what was this way of Jesus and how does that apply to these particular situations and circumstances that we're facing. Um, I think the question of is there a line or is there a limit, I don't think there's an answer to that question me personally, it's just shooting off the top of my head because every circumstance and every situation is different. And that's also part, part of the great dilemma and the culture that I think that we're trying to embrace, which is one Christian might believe this is where the line is and somebody else who just as much loves Jesus believes the line's over here. And so, I mean, the name Israel means wrestling with God, right? We're struggling and we're striving. And part of the, I think part of one of the ethics that we're trying to strive for when you, when you lay down your life to love one another in the sense is that your opinion is not absolute. You start to realize that you're open to seeing how other uh, expressions could possibly be lived out. And I listen deeply to uh, those who I don't agree with. 
because I want to understand better, and I hope that they feel loved and listened to in that respect. So I hope... So I would just note that um, our first occurrence of civil disobedience in the Bible is the story is in the story of Exodus. Uh, Pharaoh says, "Kill all the baby boy, the Hebrew baby boys, drown them in the Nile." And Shifra and Pua, who are named, and the Pharaoh is not named, which gives you an indication of how God feels about them. Shifra and Pua disobey the Pharaoh's order and save the Hebrew babies. So there's a line. We, and, we and they know lie about they it. lie about it. So lying is okay. Only in situations of civil disobedience to save Hebrew baby boys, right? Uh, Rahab lies when she's protecting the spies. There are times, and, and in Israel today, and modern Judaism as well as ancient, they talked about ordering the commands. So what's the first command? Everyone agrees, love God. What's the next command? Love your neighbor. Then they have a debate. Well, who is my neighbor? Is a Samaritan my neighbor? Jesus says, yes. Not only is the Samaritan your neighbor, the Samaritan is also your brother. Because he's riffing on Second Chronicles 28. Go have fun with that for a while when you look at the two. Um, if you want to say, well, are Romans my neighbors? Well, then there's going to be another debate. Well, they're oppressing us. Is Herod my neighbor? I don't know, right? So we, they, people are wrestling with this throughout all of time. But there's a conversation about how preservation of life comes higher than the command for Sabbath, the command for holiness of food eating, the command for um, all, the, you know, all of these different things. So you want to preserve life. You're going to love God and preserve life. That's the way in which you're doing these things. So it, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have to wrestle. The Bible itself has these wrestling points. And we should note that. I think the distinction isn't, we're not, when we say we're not talking about policy necessarily. The presumption that I would have is if I'm talking to a brother and sister in Christ who we've both already agreed, Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. That includes Christians who don't agree with you. That includes Jews, Muslims, people who don't, refugees, whomever. We're going to love God. How do we do that? Well, you guys can all have those wonky policy conversations in whatever, in whatever nation or planet you want to do. That's a different conversation. But the presumption is that we have agreed on, on these core teachings of Jesus because they're, for me, I, I, I mean, they're, they're clear. Uh, I also want to, I think this could be a good plug for the Acts series that we'll be doing next, where <laughs> yeah. you can see, like, as, as we go yes, through the book yeah. of Acts, you, you'll get some great examples on the challenges of trying to live uh, by being a good citizen and then deciding sometimes that we're not going to be good citizens and we're just going to risk the consequences. Because there are times when you see disciples of Jesus going out of their way to follow the rules and not cause any, right. you know, right. not cause a ruckus. And then there are times where they just say, well, nope, we got to break out of prison for this situation. We got to smuggle the apostle Paul out, you know, during the night. Other times, no, we've got to uh, appeal through court rulings to explain what Paul has been doing uh, in preaching the gospel. So they, it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch them work it out. Like when are they going to draw the line and when not? And we can learn a lot from it along the way. And I, I just last quick note, I think the reason why it's hard is because of everything we've already talked about, that the good news is that we belong ultimately to a different rule and reign. We belong ultimately to a king and a kingdom that's crashing down here on earth. That's the ultimate authority. But we also have a practical reality of where we live. So we don't speed down the street of a 25 school zone because we are committed to 
the laws of the land and we're committed to one of, there's going to be that wrestling. The, the reality that we are citizens of a kingdom that is here and is to come doesn't mean we abdicate our role and responsibility from the current land in which we live because that is not being a follower of Jesus either. It's that we're holding onto the tension of being a citizen in both and the ultimate higher authority that we're all part of. Okay, so here's my slide. Um, <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Um, we're very serious. This is hard. This is messy. Um, but the reason why we have these conversations is because we really believe, we sincerely believe that the way of Jesus can be powerfully transformative. And there's going to be times in, in hearing all sorts of people and something's going to well up within you go, oh, that really rubs me the wrong way. And I hope uh, something of this reminds us, okay, it's there. It's in that moment that love is perhaps most needed and most powerful. And how to extend that love and that grace to somebody who's sitting across um, the table from me or uh, on the social media from me. So uh, 30 seconds. Let's just sum it up if we can. How is the good news then? Good news today. We'll bring it to a close. And then I hope that we... Uh, always continue the conversation. So 30 seconds. How is the good news then? Good news today. Omer, then Danielle. The things that Jesus came to do and came to fight, evil, death, to bring life, those things are, were problems back then and they are problems today. And the way that Jesus fought them are ways that we're called to imitate. And for me, that's always going to be the case. It's not like it, it will never be that the good news of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and the way that he treated his enemies, there will never be a day where that, that doesn't affect everything I do and everything I understand about this world. Amen. <laughs> uh, I, I'm meeting with Lauren Chan, who's our intern for Spark, and we met a week or two ago, and I said, listen, these are interesting times that we're living in. Let's open up the Bible and see what Jesus has to say about them. That's the good news. The good news is that we're not left here without a counselor. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. You are not alone. You're in a community that's wrestling and loving, and Jesus still speaking here and here. So that that, that we have that is good news to me that I am a disciple of Jesus, that I'm called to follow him, which means to imitate him. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that we're to do this together in community. I'm really excited about that. And that's good news. And honestly, never before has the gospel felt more central, essential than it has in the last few months. I, I see that ultimately I want to be part of this rule and this reign, and I want to follow Jesus, and I want to bring more of that into this world. Yeah. And I'm going to fail at it all the time, but I'm going to work really hard to love God and to love others. And we invite you into that. Um, my response would be the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. And there is a lot of fear. And I cannot think of anything more uh, of an antidote to that fear than to lean deeper and further into love of everyone. The person who doesn't agree with you, the person who doesn't look like you, the person who is even arguing with you in front of you. How do we live in that love? And the only way to do it is to reach back into that story of a God that has loved us and to begin with that story again and allow that to transform us into living into this world.
So that's our sermon for today. Um, thank you guys so much for coming. We'll get this up on the podcast. And of course, please share it um, with friends and family and others who you think might be interested. And we'll continue to do our best to provoke and spark conversation. Um,